Welcome to Design Your Life, the podcast where we explore the central role design plays in our everyday lives and how, if harnessed correctly, has the power to positively transform the way that we live, design better businesses and sustainable solutions for the planet. We speak to creative entrepreneurs around the world about how they inspire their ideas to life and how they make it all work and the role design plays in their lives. I'm your host, founder of Frost Collective and author of Design Your Life, Vince Frost. At Frost Collective, we are dedicated to designing a better world. Our specialist teams work across branding, strategy, place visioning and wayfinding, solving problems with empathy and creativity to design experiences that benefit people, business and the planet. And as a proud certified B Corp, we meet the highest environmental and social standards by balancing profit with our purpose to design a better world. To find out more, head to frostcollective.com.au. Welcome to today's episode of Design Your Life, the Fitcher series, where we explore what is the least you need to do for good health. One of the key pillars of good health is your environment. So today I catch up with the CEO of Greenpeace Australia Pacific, David Richard, to discuss just that. Tune in to find out more about the history of Greenpeace, what this amazing organization is doing for the environment, and how you too can contribute to making the environment a safer, healthier place for future generations. Hey David, welcome to Design Your Life. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's such an honor to have you here today in the studio too, in the physical studio in Alexandria. Um, you know, a lot of people, have been, we've been doing a lot of podcasts via, uh, you know, Zoom, etc. Riverside, I think it's called, uh, the, the platform. But it's so much nicer to have a real person uh, in, this, in this space. So Man, being back in three dimensions, it's so good, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So welcome. Welcome to Frost Collective. It's really cool to have you here. And, and I understand you, you don't live that far away from here too, which is cool. Uh, happily uh, uh, citizen of the inner west of Sydney and uh, love it. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Um, you're the CEO of Greenpeace, Australia Pacific, one of the world's largest independent global campaigning network. And I was reading today, which I really love, the... Um, uh, kind of the non-violent creative action towards a greener, more peaceful world and to confront the systems that threaten our environment. It's like, wow, how cool that creativity is at the heart of that, creative action, you know. It's, we'll, we'll talk more about <laughs> Greenpeace, but what I want to do is kind of talk about your childhood because you are a human being, you are the CEO, but you're a human being that came into this world and you're doing a phenomenal job and we all thank you for it. Thank you, David. <laughs> well, but how did you get it, to that? It's a movement of millions. It's not, not the work no. of any individual, but, uh, but thank you on behalf of Greenpeace. Oh, thank you. And, and um, it's just be really interesting to understand your childhood and how you, what led you to where you are today yeah. and, and your journey. I understand that you, were, you grew up in the west coast of Australia. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, look, all life stories come with, uh, with certain warnings that it, that it all looks sort of um, like it followed a, 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 a convenient storyline in hindsight, but of course it, it wasn't really like that and we all have plenty of sliding door moments and getting in the wrong queue and meeting the wrong person at the wrong time. So, so take it all with that, with that grain of salt. But <laughs> look, I, I, um, I grew up in Perth, in, in Perth's foothills, and, um, you know, nature was all around you knew where the beetles were you knew which 
which rocks had the snakes. Um, I grew up on a creek that, that was uh, full of um, native catfish, cobbler we called them, um, in Western Australia and, you know, there were frogs in the pool and bobtails on the road and, and, and all of the rest of it. But I also grew up not very far from where Greenpeace's first uh, ever creative confrontation took place in Australia, which was mm. um, taking on the then whaling industry in, in Albany. So... Um, I've, I've known about Greenpeace really for as long as I can um, remember, long before I, I was uh, formally involved in any way. And amazing, it's, it, I, I came to, with my family, came to Australia in 2003. Um, prior to that, for a few holidays, I had to think about that. But <laughs> you forget how, you quite quickly forget how wild it can be. It, it, as you just described, it's like... Pretty terrifying and life-threatening <laughs> environment uh, to be growing up, growing up in. But I guess your family taught you what was safe to play with and what wasn't. It's quite. Did that? Is that where kind of the beginning beginning of the interest in nature began? Yeah. Well, it was. It wasn't so much an interest in nature as, as we were just we were just in it, and um, we we were on three and a bit acres of um, a not very successful orchard that led down to this creek, as I mentioned. Um, and the, the valley in question had been owned by the Noongar people from time immemorial. So there was always, and, and my mother always used to talk about this, that there was always a sense that we lived in the valley, but the valley had been lived in for, for millennia. And um, in, in hindsight, I recognised that, of course, the, the valley I grew up with uh, was itself a, a depleted place compared to the way it must have been 10,000 mm. years beforehand or even 300 years beforehand. Mm. And even in my, my parents' time, and I've, I've, I've told this, this story before, but um, there used to be these, these large freshwater crayfish called marin that were absolutely prolific in the, in the creek that we were on. Um, and they're delicious, <laughs> I don't mind saying. And then one day, uh, someone who didn't live in the neighbourhood came with a mask and a spear gun um, and took out sacks of them, and then they were gone. Jeez. And that was that. And you'd see one every so often in the years after that, but, yeah. but when you saw one, they were far too precious then to, to, to catch and eat. So one of the, the early stories of my mm. life was, was this story of depletion from this creek that my... Um, that my father in particular absolutely loved. He, he always said it reminded him of, um, of one of the streams of where he grew up in, in Czechoslovakia. Um, but, I, but I used to have nightmares in the, as a kid about the, the, um, the man uh, whose face I could never see in the dreams but who had the spear and the sacks. And it's so sad what, a, a, what looked like a simple mm. act could be such a, have a long-term effect on you and and the creek and yeah. the planet, et cetera. And that happens place. on a daily basis, I guess, you know, it's like around the world it's happening in small scale and large scale kind of situations. You talked about your dad um, from Czechoslovakia. Um, he was a Jewish refugee, came to Australia, escaping the Holocaust. Wow. What kind of effect did his life experience have on, on you guys growing up in Perth? Yeah, well, I mean, my, my dad was... Um in a way, incredibly fortunate because he got out from Prague in 1939. He was 14 and he got out on the last of the, the children's trains, which were literally these trains of, of Jewish kids um, who were only able to emigrate if they'd been sponsored. And, and my, my father's 
mother, so my grandmother had done some tuition in England as a as a uh, I think as a boarding teacher of of um, uh, of something. I, I, I must the, the family history is not coming back to me. Um, you listened well as a child, but, well, clearly, clearly. <laughs> but the, the consequence was that she had some friends in England who were prepared to sponsor this um, 14-year-old wow. skinny Jewish kid. Um, I still have uh, a book um, that would, had been owned by one of those two uh, women somewhere and it is one of my most cherished possessions because they saved my father's life um, and um, as a consequence, of course, the, the reason why I and my, my siblings um, exist. Um, but it's... It, as. I think many children of refugees um, reflect it, it. It it does now. I think give you a certain um, inclination towards um, justice, towards uh, wanting to give back in the course of your life in in whatever way. And obviously, there are there are many many ways that that, that people find to do that. Many paths. Mm. Amazing. So, what happened from the creek, the depleted creek, to what was the next steps in your life? What did you? How did you end up where you are now? Did you go to school in yeah. Perth and st- I, study there? I, I did, I did. And I, I should say, just to sort of fill the gap, so so Dad spent some time in the UK and didn't migrate to Western Australia until the, the 60s, which is where oh. he then had this experience of um, looking for a place and he and my mother um, saw this this property with this creek. The, the house was pretty ramshackle. Um, I'm not sure that my mother was ever that impressed with the uh, the ramshackle sort of uh, um, tumble down place, but but my dad saw the creek. Um, so yeah, look, I went to went to school in Western Australia. Um, uh, uh, most of that time, the, the, the sort of most formative years, I guess, were at uh, Les Murdy State High School. Um, then on to the University of Western Australia, where I benefited from you know some wonderful teachers there. Teachers I'm I'm still in touch with. Um, now many decades later and read yeah. some wonderful books but also just had some really stupid conversations on the lawns and, you know, probably went to too many parties and probably <laughs> spent more time engaged in um, uh, uh, political activity than, uh, than I should have um, even then. But uh, mm. I, I think anyone who grows up in a, in a city as safe as Western Australia, as Perth is by, by world standards and that has such extraordinary natural beauty all around it. Um, you, 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 can't, you can't help but count your blessings. Mm. Well, clearly not everybody does because people are still obliterating it. <laughs> well, they? yes. You know, you're... you're well, well, yeah, I mean, we're all different. We all have different values, etc. But So I understand you, you, you ended up st- studying law. That's right, yes. How, how did you decide that's what you wanted to do? Um, well, I mean, a sort of glib way of putting it is that I wasn't very good at maths or science, um, and I, I liked language, um, and I suppose uh, I had I knew people who had um, who had uh, legal experience, um, and look, if I'm really honest, I just didn't have a lot of imagination. Um, it sort of sounds crazy, but I actually didn't know if you if you enjoyed language and sort of were cared about the world, um, what else you did. So it was almost a lack of imagination that, that took me um, into um, uh, the law school. But but I, I did 
uh, history as well. And, and um, for me, it was always a, a bit of a sense of um, the, the, the love for the arts and the humanities and the sort of necessity of, mm. of studying law. But then the, the, the really significant thing that happened in the time I was at law school was, first of all, there was one lecture from one lecturer that, that completely changed how I felt about myself in the law school. And a bloke who sort of walked in, he was a guest lecturer from Canada, and his opening uh, uh, statement to the class was, uh, all too often the law is written for those on the riverbank. It is not written for those who are drowning. And it was... Is Scottish? Just of... I'm not sure where that accent came from, actually. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you said Canada then. Yeah, I, I don't think... Um, you, you don't go to me for impersonations. <laughs> Let's just put that on the, on the record now. Um, uh, it... It was a very strongly expressed sentiment, and it it, it 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 you can look at how my marks in the in the faculty shift wow. after that point because suddenly there was That's a true. there was a real purpose to this this, yeah. and then there was a, a subsequent lecturer um, a guy by the name of uh, Professor Richard Bartlett who was a world expert in Indigenous land title, and then the Mabo decision historic decision was handed down, and um, it was a moment where. Um, there was this great moral challenge for Australia. Uh, so I wrote my final year honours dissertation about that and really that was the next 10 years of my life. Um, wow. was, was one way or another working um, for Indigenous land justice in, in, to some extent elsewhere but mainly Western Australia. Mm. And then you, you, I heard that you went to London eventually. What, what made that shift? Yeah, well, what was in, what's the impetus around that? Uh, well, look, the easy explanation is there was a girl involved. Oh, um, here we go. <laughs> no, look, I, I, I was very, very happy to to say that I felt absolutely head over heels uh, in love um, with someone to whom I'm uh, very, very happily married uh, twenty odd years later. Um, no, Frances uh, um, was. Uh, pursuing her uh, uh, academic work in the UK. And so I think anyone who's had a long-distance relationship knows that there's a, a lot to be, uh, a lot to be um, desired about that. Um, but also I felt like um, I'd come really to the end of the road um, as a lawyer. Um, and there was a particular moment up a hill in New Zealand um, where it sort of came to land with me that I needed to do something else. And it wasn't that I didn't love um, the work that I was doing, working um, for the traditional owners for the First Nations of the uh, Pilbara, Murchison and Gascoigne regions of Western Australia, which I'd, I'd done for many years. I was very, very dedicated to that, to that cause and loved working with those people. But they'd reached a point where I was tired of saying, I act for, I appear for, and I was impatient to be more of a, more of a political actor with my own skin in the game. Mm. That moment, ah, in so New yeah, <laughs> yeah, but you don't go from a hill in New Zealand to being in London. No, you're right. <laughs> yeah. right? We we yeah. do not teleport. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what uh, once I guess I'd, I'd um, uh, yeah had decided to to move on from the the land council, and there was a sort of period of time where we were really working out what to do next, and. Um, it did take me a while. I mean, uh, my, my spouse still um, good-naturedly and quite deservedly ribs me about this. It did take me a little while, but then I did make my way to the UK um, and was uh, uh, sitting in, in the um, British Library with uh, her in London looking for a job. Um, 
and uh, I was still doing some some academic work with the University of Western Australia remotely from from London. So I still sort of you know had had work, but I was looking for a, a job in the UK, and there was an advert to work for Greenpeace senior mm. campaigns position. And I thought Greenpeace. I mean, I've been a been a monthly donor to Greenpeace for many many years. I've loved Greenpeace forever. I used to have a picture of the Rainbow Warrior on my wall back in the day. But mm. can you? Could I really work for Greenpeace? And I was, I remember sort of running through the uh, the job criteria, thinking, oh well, I can, I've sort of done that. I can kind of do that. Or maybe I've done something a bit like that. I, you know, how often do you get a chance to to give a go at something like this? And so I. Um, I applied with, with all my heart and was fortunate enough to get an interview and they told me afterwards that, that um, something to the effect of I was an unusual applicant but there was enough in my application that showed how much I wanted it and mm. also that there was stuff I could offer even if it was a little bit unorthodox for, as, a, as a sort of hire for Greenpeace in UK. Someone had sort of spent the last how many years of their life working on native title in the scrub in Western Australia. So... Yeah. Um, and I made a great impression to the interview. I got lost on the way. Uh, I was late getting there, uh, so I had to run, which meant that I was sweating and arrived wearing a suit, um, and none of the interview panel were wearing a suit. So <laughs> somehow I made it past those first impressions to a, a, an interview that ended up in them offering me a job. Wow, and, and not wearing a suit, they were just casually dressed... I think they were wearing clothes. Um, it was not your sort of. It wasn't. It wasn't the kind of full hippie look here. But no, no. it was. Um, it was very much workplace casual. But this was. You said twenty years ago. So that's like the eighties, nineties. No, no, no. So it was two thousand and seven. Was was when I rocked up in in London to that oh, interview. Okay. So it's fifteen years ago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So I I wasn't sure. Sure. So the, so the, the what did you do there? What was the job? So the, the first job I had was a senior oceans campaigner and um, I had to sort of say, look, I don't, I don't know a great deal about um, what, what this work involves. Um, you know, of course, I love the oceans. So I, you know, grew up, on, grew up in Western Australia and sort of, you know, family holidays paddling about the rock pools and rock nest and mm. all this sort of thing. Yeah, but, um, uh, and they gave me a book before I started called The End of the Line by a, uh, a journalist called Charles Clover, a very patrician journalist called Charles Clover, who I later came to know and is a terrific advocate, great, great writer, fine journalist, um, uh, but not beyond a sharp sense of humour if, you, uh, uh, if you're not having one of your, your own um, sharpest days. Yeah. Um, and The End of the Line... Uh, I read, it is one of only two books I have read in a single sitting, start to finish. Wow. And when I finished the book, I had literally tears pouring down my cheeks because what the book described was the destruction of our oceans through overfishing. And then it ends with a chapter imagining a fishing port in the United Kingdom and what it would be like if we just did all the things we already knew how to do to bring the oceans back to health. And not only would there be more fish in the sea, more creatures in the sea, but you actually have people catching more fish and you have smaller boats and you have more employment and you have mm. greater tourism and you have less... Pol- and the whole thing is better. And, I, and it was that, that journey to a redemption that we could achieve if we just did all these things that we already know how to do 
and I thought I'm I I love this book and um, uh, I can't wait to get stuck into this work and I'm happy to give my life to this cause. Oh, and it just when you're just saying that, it just reminded me of your creek story too. The the fact that on a smaller scale you'd already experienced that and under, had a real understanding of the value of nature and, and and keeping you know the I guess the not over abusing the earth etc. Well, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. It, the, the, I think the parallel is there, but it actually didn't occur to me some time into and, until I'd, I'd been working on, on overfishing and uh, destructive fishing for, for some time. And, you know, the terrible things you learn about the extent of, of bycatch, of, of thro- throwing so-called non-target species back overboard, um, dead or dying. No, it's, with some catches, you're talking about 50% of what is caught are just creatures that are killed and then thrown back into the sea. The practice of bottom trawling, which is essentially like bulldozing the, the floor of the ocean. Um, but, you know, um, we are, even even on this uh, on this issue, we are making um, progress, not as fast as we should as a, as a, as a, um, as a world. Um, and, you know, it's, it, on the very day we are recording this podcast, um, there is a United Nations vote on whether to establish a high seas global oceans treaty. Greenpeace has been working on this campaign for at least 17 years, um, along with many others. It's, it's been um, greatly collaborative. If that treaty uh, uh, becomes a thing, then it creates a framework for establishing high seas marine sanctuaries for the first time in human history, and that will be an epic result if it happens. It's got to, hasn't it? Well, I would like to say it's a question of when, but it yeah. may not happen this week. We may not get the, the vote through this week. There's a, there's a, for various reasons, there's a very strong chance of that. Um, and look, the other thing I'll just say about the, 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 the time of becoming an oceans uh, campaigner is I learnt so much about how you be a campaigner and how you be a campaigner for Greenpeace, and it did not come to me naturally. Mm. It really took me a while to, to learn the the art of this organisation that I knew from the outside, but it was only when I got inside that I realised just how laser-focused it was on strategy, how every tactic had to pass through a series of, of sort of internal gateways and how how that was matched with um, just deep, deep commitment. And I, I, I worked with some wonderful people of whom my, my closest... Um, closest colleague was a, a Scottish ocean campaigner uh, called Willie McKenzie, from whom I learnt so much. He's such an extraordinary, naturally gifted um, communicator. Um, so they were, they were wonderful, um, wonderful times of, uh, of, of learning what it meant to, to serve Greenpeace from, uh, from the inside. And it's obviously a highly, as you say, a highly strategic organisation trying to win or is it is it winning or converting or i mean it's it's kind of non-violent strategies which is very frustrating <laughs> because i'm sure yeah i mean it it the, the the world is being violently damaged um and i guess aggression against aggression doesn't doesn't work what, what is how do how do you guys approach we're, this we would I mean, very strongly agree i mean it's in the name green greenpeace we have a very, very strong ethic of of, um, of non-violence, of peacefulness. There's a there was a significant Quaker influence in our roots, mm-hmm. um, and people were very, very serious about about that. So to the point where, um, on occasion, um, you wouldn't go ahead with a particular communications idea because it it, it simply looked too aggressive, or it looked too um, uh, like it was not 
not supportive of the kind of world that we believed in, um, that we that we believe in. Um, but nonetheless, uh, highly strategic, in the sense that we are a campaigning organisation that looks at what are the greatest threats to achieving our mission, which is an Earth capable of securing an Earth capable of nurturing life in all of its magnificent diversity. Mm-hmm. And once we've isolated those threats, you do a power analysis to work out which decision makers you have to shift so we can put instead the world on a pathway to to wise earth stewardship and peace. And then you have a strategy for for shifting those decision makers um, through a campaign, which is the the concentration of resources to achieve an end. Just made me think that your law experience is vital for the role that you play. Uh, and what the role, role um, Greenpeace pays to be able to do all this yeah. in the legal or know what the loopholes might be to, <laughs> to man- manoeuvre. Uh, it's a it's an interesting one, and um, so law is one of the uh, levers that that Greenpeace will sometimes apply. Um, and the law itself has safeguards, so you can't, you know, use it to vexatiously litigate or something anyway. But Greenpeace has a long and proud history as a litigant. The very first piece of climate litigation in the world was run by Greenpeace Australia Pacific in 1994, Greenpeace and Red Bank. We lost, unfortunately. Had we won, the world might be a different place by now, but the, wow. the jurisprudence was not, not favourable to us in those days. Um, but I think... Law does also give you a set of tools for for um, for analysing power, but what you also learn is that there are a whole lot of other ways of looking at the world. So, you know, you look at the world through a discursive lens, through a design lens, through a heart lens, um, uh, through um, uh, an economic lens. Uh, so there, you, you have to bring all these multiple different mm-hmm. ways of of looking at any campaign scenario to to make clear what the power scape is that you're navigating through. Well, that's interesting you say about the design lens. Obviously, we're a design company, and we're, our passion is to design a better world. And we don't mean that in a glib way, because, of course, design can improve anything, can make things look nicer. It could be a nicer pen, a nicer cup. That's kind of a bit of a superficial kind of um, approach in a way. Um, but how might designers listening in play a part in, you know, Taking, put, putting their skills into real-world um, briefs and, and tackling it with, you know, creating new ideas that, that help um, move towards fixing uh, the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, we have, we have reached a point where the world as we knew it is no more as a consequence of climate change and um, various ecological impacts. So we are now at a, at a point where it's how we... Um, how we design the future, I guess, in in the broad sense, mm. from here, and I think at the at the concrete level of of unfortunate metaphor, perhaps mm. um, at the level of how we live, and at the um, and considering that we need to redesign our society, our economy, uh, all of our systems of transport, energy production, and so on, at emergency speed and scale. I think we are going to rely on those with design skills to a phenomenal extent to help us deliver uh, 
that world. And I and I believe that there is still a bridge, and I think the evidence says there is still a bridge through to a world of future flourishing. Mm-hmm. The designers of the world are going to be needed to help construct yeah. that bridge. And and if you look at, for example, I don't know if, if um, you're familiar with the, f- the film 2040 that Damon Gamow brought out a few years ago. I mean, one of the things that was so striking about that film was the, the beauty of its, the, its design aesthetics in the in the, the look and feel that the imagined uh, homes and cities of 2040 had. And the way they were rendered, you wanted to live in this future, not only because we'd got climate sorted and, and environment in, on, the, on the improve, but because it was beautiful, but because these, these were places that sung. Mm. And... Um, that is how it should be. Why, why would we not seek to design homes, workplaces, cities, suburbs, farms in ways that are, that are beautiful and that nurture social cooperation, mm-hmm. um, nurture inclusion and, and you know, probably all these other things that you think about on a daily basis? Well, it's in a way everything that's not you know, nature has been man-made or human-made, designed. And, and a lot of things are bad. Some things are really great. Um, but design's got us into this problem, right? I mean, I think this designing endless products and manipulating people's senses to want to have more than yes. what they need. Um, we're fundamentally screwed <laughs> through advertising, I think, or through... Individuals being entrepreneurial and going, hey, I want to have a go at this. I want to create this. I want to make this product, you know, another sh- another kind of beauty product or another chair. Or an- like this is endless what's being made. And, yeah. and it's like, what's going to stop that? Or should we stop that? Like, it's this, this kind of over um, saturation of, I mean, we're, I think we're, we're designed, we're, as human beings, we're designed on this earth to be optimistic, to be, uh, want to improve things. We have that type of mind. You know, we want to make things. We want to craft things. You know, we want to add value. And I guess people's perception of value is different. You know, a, a pop star that's a virtually a billionaire is just making music. And and there's a side benefit that he's he or she is making tons of of money. And an unnaturally unfairness of you know, it's the money, the financial situation is appalling at the moment where it's not evenly distributed. Um, there's so many people that don't have anything. Uh, they don't have phones. They don't have, you know, hardly any money or a house over there, a roof over their head. I mean, we got this such a, I don't know. We, we've talked about it for years and centuries. And, it, and it's like, is it ever going to be fixed? Is Is the consequence of... Shit, the world is screwed because the environment is like we got to change, act really quickly. Is that going to actually kick us all up the backside and make it happen? I mean, is it likely to happen? I mean, you've got to stay optimistic, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you're going to say yes, it is. Well, I'm not going to say it's certain. What I'm going to say is that there is an extraordinary opportunity, but it's an opportunity that is laden with with terror. Mm. Um, we face a set of challenges that are truly uh, grim in their implications. And because we haven't acted fast enough so far on uh, climate uh, and the environment, and when I say we, 
progress has been held back by the vested interests of the fossil fuel industry in Australia. It is companies like Woodside, like Santos and so on that are holding us back and it is the coal, oil and gas industries that have held us back. Um, We are now in a situation where we have to decarbonise at emergency speed and scale. So we need to reduce emissions by... 75% at least by 2030 in Australia to be consistent with the global Paris climate targets. That's that's like around the corner, that's a few years away. That is now a few years away, which is why I don't use the term emergency lightly. We have to do this at emergency speed and scale. Now, the job for all of us, apart from the, the sheer engineering feat there, is how do we use this moment of this incredible pressure of the transformation that is going to come because of this this climate emergency. And it's coming whether we like it or not. So it can be it can be transformed in ways that are terrible and out of our control. Or we can do our best from here. So the question for us is how do we use this moment? How do we use the forcing of this great climate crisis? And, and in that, forge a country, forge cities, forge communities, forge a world mm. that is fairer, that is kinder, where there are the prospects of nature being regenerated and returning to future flourishing. And that is the challenge of our times, and it Mm. is terrifying. But it is also an extraordinary privilege. We get to live in this moment where we have this chance to apply our energies and our talents to this task that if we can make it through for centuries, for millennia, fruit will be born of, of, of that work. So we need to embrace the moment for all that we can with all that we all that we have. Is it certain? No. Is it possible? Yes. Let's get on with it. And continue with it too, right? Because you know it's going to fix it and then it's all done. But I, I, what, what are you seeing around you in your everyday? Are you seeing um, change happening? Are you seeing people activating? Because, I mean, we have clients... Continuously, I see definitely the younger generation too are absolutely passionate about this. Some of the older guys are more cynical, you know. Oh, well, I'm almost done. I don't really, need to <laughs> you know, I'm going to go out and get a, a V8. Um, you know, I mean, like there's. Do you, do you see in your everyday kind of uh, conversations and, and, and uh, you know your observations around the world that change is happening? Oh, a thousand mo- percent. Moving towards. Okay, cool. Yeah, a thousand percent. I mean. The, one of the campaigns that Greenpeace has run in Australia-Pacific over the last few years uh, was called Re-Energise, and the, the purpose of the campaign was to shift uh, major Australian businesses uh, to commit to 100% renewable electricity for all of their operations by 2025 or sooner. So really ambitious commitments mm. consistent with what's necessary to keep faith with the Paris climate goals. Yep. And we're talking about major businesses here. And in the course of that campaign, 21 major businesses came across, including the five, according to Roy Morgan, the five most trusted brands in Australia. So we're talking the likes of Coles, Woolworths, Bunnings, Telstra, Aldi. And these commitments are real and being seen in terms of new build solar, new build wind. The scale of the commitments is such that when Woolworths, for example, made that commitment, it was the equivalent of every home in Tasmania solarising overnight. Well done, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, nicely said. And actually, it's a big part of it is when we don't, Greenpeace never takes any money from any government or any business or any political party anywhere in the world. That means we can communicate without fear or favour. And when a business does the right thing, 
you say thanks. Amazing. You give credit where credit's due. So yeah, I can yeah. I can confirm. I said thank you very much, Brad. We we you know we appreciate the the step taken because when you're a campaigning organisation and a campaign is successful, you say thanks. Yeah, fantastic. And we recently became B Corp certified. Congratulations. Um, thank you. And it means so much to us. And changing our energy provider was a big thing for us to do too, which we've done and, and as well as many other things. What part can an individual, we're talking about like what's the least you can do because there's so much to do, right? And, and we all must play a part, but we've all got to want to play a part. Yeah. And we also got to like utilize our skill set or something that we feel comfortable doing. What's the, what's the least we could do out of everything? Look, I th- I, it's, a, it's probably the question in, in different forms I get asked most. And I also encounter a lot of anxiety where people worry that perhaps they haven't, they didn't recycle their cup that morning or, you know, they didn't eat something local for lunch. Now, what I will always say is we, we should all try and live good lives according to our own values. Mm-hmm. There are all those personal sanitation things about recycling and so on. But the one thing, the one thing, think about what your superpowers are and choose the biggest thing. So if you're the CEO of Aldi, the biggest thing is going to 100% renewable electricity. Mm. If you are, as someone was, the, the CEO of a community kindergarten, the biggest thing they could do was become Australia's first carbon neutral kindergarten. Um, it all depends on what your own superpowers are. But have a think what is the biggest mm. thing you can do yep. to the overall task of reducing emissions as fast as we can at emergency speed and scale. Work out the biggest thing, then do the biggest thing and maybe sweat the small stuff a little bit less. Jeez, that is good. That is a really good uh, answer to that question and I'm really, uh, it's giving me goosebumps actually. Um, Thank you. Thank you, David. I was going to ask you one more question. Um, I could talk with you forever, ever, and I, we should catch up again and have a chat. Um, have you designed your life? I feel called. I don't feel. Um, I don't feel like I'm the architect of the life that I'm in. Mm-hmm. I feel called by the vocation of, of two things, and one is the uh, ex- incredible love that I feel for my family, and I think many of us know that that experience of that all-consuming love and devotion to your family mm-hmm. and I feel called by the vocation of, of serving the spirit the movement the cause the mission of, of Greenpeace of that seeking an earth capable of nurturing life and all of its magnificent diversity so I have to say I feel more more called to vocation than, than I do a design a designer of my own life but it's uh you must feel amazing in the role that you play uh, at Greenpeace, and and uh, you know the you know, you're doing the work for us. <laughs> you know you're leading uh, the direction of, of uh, helping kind of fix these uh, the situation. Well, well, it's a I work with an outstandingly talented team that has a culture that is just wonderful. I mean, you 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 you. These are great people to work with. They are a source of energy and ideas and um, 
endless, endless resilience and passion and inspiration. But then that that uh, staff team is embedded in a wider group of incredible activists and volunteers who turn up and turn out and show up. And again, it's the, those reservoirs of, of, of passion and resilience. And then they're embedded in the wider group of more than a million Australians who uh, we were able to communicate with across all our platforms who write to the politicians and sign the petitions and and uh, get the submissions into Parliament or, or send the Facebook post to, to Woolworths or whatever it might be. There are mm. so many different yeah. ways. Um, or they, they get involved as a volunteer researcher or... or and it is all important. They, they kick in their 40 bucks a month or they remember Greenpeace in, in a bequest. And, and that's so important because we, we don't take any money from any government or any business ever. So mm. I, it, is, it is to be part of a family. It is to be part of a crew. And I love it. And 15 years inside Greenpeace, I still find myself metaphorically skipping to work in the morning. I still cannot believe that that I actually get paid to work for an organisation I love, for a mission I feel called to, um, with just the finest team you could want. Wow, that's good. That is really good. You've covered everybody who's contributed to it, to Greenpeace, and continues to as well. I mean, obviously, the team's vital. The world is vital. The population is going to play their part too, right? In each and every one of us. It's kind of, a, I felt a bit of an analogy with our, our team here. We've got about 45 people of all walks of life, all, all different skill sets. And that collective power mm. has so much potential. For sure. To do bad, to do okay, <laughs> to do brilliant. You know, it's like actually where do you point them? Yep. That's the key thing. Um, so if we can in some way help uh, contribute to Greenpeace. Uh, we, we, we work on a whole bunch of projects that we're obviously trying to do our best at focusing on putting our energies into the right place. Our superpower, as you say, is so important. We've got an exhibition coming in, uh, up at, at NGV in October 7th. Uh, we've actually talked to you about um, some questions that we're going to you know, put to the, to, the, to the public in that exhibition. So look out for that. It's in, embargoed right now, so I can't say <laughs> what it is, but it's coming up really soon, and we're really, really excited about uh, the power of ideas uh, and, the, and the fact that ideas can come from anywhere. And, and so it's something kind of the presumption that organizations like Greenpeace are working things out. Yes, you mm. are working things out, but there's still a lot of things that you, we just haven't solved or, or you, you're, you're trying to find answers to things that maybe a small kid in Perth uh, might come up with an idea, you know, that, that actually changes the world or steps us into the right right direction. David, it's been such a wonderful opportunity to sit with you here and, and have a chat. I wish it could go on for a lot longer, but I really thank you, uh, and I look forward to uh, further conversations. Thanks so much for having me, Vince. It was great to chat. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Design Your Life, the Fitter series, with Greenpeace Australia Pacific CEO David Ritter. Stay tuned for upcoming fitness episodes in the coming weeks. Thanks for listening to this episode of Design Your Life. If you'd like to find out more about how you can design your life, head to the website at designyourlife.com.au. If you found this episode inspiring, please don't forget to review and subscribe. If you have any ideas or like to get in touch, we would love to hear from you send us an email at hello at frostcollective.com.au.